And welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here in uh, Toronto Live at CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all across the universe, uh, as well as our podcast listeners at greenmajority.ca. Want to give you uh, my personal thank you very much to all the listeners who doted last week during the membership bribe, just uh, echoing uh, Ken there. Thank you very much from all of us. Uh, we, uh, Yeah, prizes may be coming your way. We'll see. Uh, but for now, I give you to Stefan and Dave in the studio. The Green Majority. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've got a, we've got a good show for you tonight. Uh, we have today. an information. We have an information heavy show. Yes. Today. Um, and in some the first the first uh, at least two stories are a little uh, a little more in the weeds I would say than we often dive. Uh, well, the first story is maybe maybe the, the first story about we the investment bank the is the European Investment Bank. Yes. Uh, their divestment from fossil fuels. We have the Alberta uh, system that's replacing the carbon pricing system uh, and Notley's carbon pricing system. So this is Jason Kenney's carbon pricing system in yes. Alberta, yeah. Canada, of course. The new Canadian environmental minister, uh, environment and climate change minister, uh, Mr. Jonathan Wilkinson. And then we're going to get into a slew, Stefan, a plethora. Oh, wow. I know how much you love that word. That's a great word. A plethora of energy stories. Some uh, mostly actually quite happy. Some of them uh, filled with uh, Schadenfreude for the death of the death of coal. <laughs> There's uh, a bit of Schadenfreude throughout this entire show, I think. Uh, constantly. Yeah. It's very sad. We're we're, dis- we're despicable and envious people at the Green Majority. Yeah. But we're going to make sure that we try very very hard not to gaslight anyone. Yes. That's why we're green. Yes. Um, green with envy. Green with envy. Wow. Uh, well, let's jump in. Let's get into. The, let's <laughs> uh, now that we've now that we've covered what we're doing. Uh, let's get into puns. <laughs> let's get into this investment story. I wanted to talk about how we're envious of all those middle class white males. What are you doing? <laughs> that's the argument that they're that they're envious. That, well, that that's that why people they... are envious of them. Oh, then... that's why they want to take them down. Wow. Okay. Well. Let's let's we're actually, envious of them. That's why we want to take them down. Right, we're coming for their for their coal jobs, um, or I guess not really coal because coal jobs aren't aren't employed by these people. You know, coal is a very unpleasant thing to work in from a standpoint of like worker rights and I know. experience. I know. It's a generally unpleasant job. We want them to get better jobs. But anyways, let's let's talk about Europe. So, in a bid to help the well, we should mention that Lauren Latour has abandoned us. Unfortunately, well, <laughs> she was going to be here. She's abandoned us. She was sick. That's a perfectly reason reasonable reason to not be here. In a bid to help the EU reach 32% renewable energy capacity by 2030, the European Investment Bank has announced that it will stop financing fossil fuel projects after 2021. Some new natural gas projects may still be uh, able to sneak in before the deadline, which could cement Europe's reliance on fossil fuels for decades to come, but some claim that this will be made difficult by growing environmental outrage throughout the EU. In any case, it's the biggest divestment move taken by any development bank, and it could have implications for others like the Asian Development Bank and the World Bank, both of which, according to E&E News, have indeed been signaling their intent to perhaps begin slowing down their aggravation of our growing global catastrophe. The European Investment Bank plans to, uh, quote, align all financing activities with the goals of the Paris Agreement, investing over 1 trillion euros on climate projects over the next 10 years, or in their words, quote, clean energy innovation, energy efficiency, and renewables, which may include decentralized grids and carbon capture and storage technologies. 
They will also establish a just transition fund to pay up to 75% of the cost of green projects in EU countries that are struggling to find investment. The European Investment Bank, of course, only represents a drop in the puddle of worldwide fossil fuel finance, which companies, with companies like J.P. Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo far outstripping them. But Scott Carpenter points out for Forbes that the uncertainty caused by this move and the others that might follow could affect the interest rates of loans to fossil fuel companies, uh, making it more expensive to borrow money for projects and lower the uh, some of those companies' stock values as well. Yeah, and again, we keep covering these types of things, and the some of the conversation ends up being relatively similar afterwards because when you know because the a lot of this divestment moving money away is. Um, is is this it is moving us closer and closer to the tipping point when f- f- new fossil fuel comp- uh, projects are are unfundable uh, or are or impossible to find investment for or very difficult or or, or you know to the, the we're moving more and more access to capital for these for these companies and at some point if that becomes a reality that 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 is that, that that these companies can no longer have these 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 new projects then the fact that all of these new companies stock values are based on 20 year futures becomes a huge liability uh, because at that point you know if you if you no longer can get investment for new projects suddenly the idea that you're going to be still producing more oil in 20 years than you are now is at the very least suspect uh, and so, and so, a, a lot of these types of things are, 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 are you know, every time, every time something else comes through, this happens. But uh, the is a slight twist on this story, or a slightly different story. I want to bring into the conversation of this one, um, which is about the. Uh, it's about the, about Sweden specifically, and and their decision actually to to not just the Sweden pension fund I believe I will, I will pull that up and have a second um, but the their decision basically to not just focus on oil companies you know it's one thing to divest from oil companies that is a you know that is or or from fossil fuels uh, and that sort of is a main main push but uh, but Sweden's central bank uh, said that this week that they were dropping Alberta bonds as it, as part of its divestment um, campaign which means that you know bonds are how governments basically fund them, you know, fund new projects and fund themselves, and, but they're backed on how well that particular government is will do financially, and so to, to the fact that Sweden is has decided that the that Alberta is so at risk to to a divestment to so to in oil and so so beholden to oil that the bonds are part of divestment portfolio has has sent alberta through a whole uh, through a loop they've gone on a whole they've gone on a whole uh, the financial officials have gone out to institutional investors to try to counter this this narrative right now uh, just really quickly uh, to even add even more emphasis to what you're saying, Stefan. So, like a, a bond, essentially at a very high level. Tim Nash is going to freak out right now, but it's it's okay. Um, <laughs> At a very high level, it's like I'm going to give you some money now on the assurance that I want you to do what you're doing and that I'm going to get more money back from you later. Right. Yes. It's a it's a long term bet, essentially. Um, so what there's it's so the the doubt, the, the lack of confidence there is specifically on one part of the oil industry. It's not an abstract. It's specifically we do not think this will pay back more than we're giving in. Yes, exactly. And specifically for Alberta. And that's for their entire that's their for their entire economy. Right. It's not it's this is that you're out. The Alberta economy is so invested. And this is comes on the heels of the fact that the last three um, last three years. Uh, Alberta has seen foreign companies sell more than th- sell more than 30 billion dollars of assets 
um, uh, out of out, uh, as, with from from the oil sands. So these external com- countries. This is not. This has nothing to do. It's sort of. It goes against the entire narrative that Canada is not trying to is, is not is is the one that's coming out against this. Thirty billion foreign companies decide of dollars from foreign companies decided that it was not was not worth the risk to to be in part of the oil sands. And now you're seeing other other countries like Sweden Central Bank decide that they once again are not th- seeing the risk in Alberta. So what we're seeing is. Globally, a concern for the Alberta economy that apparently is not being shown by anyone who is running Alberta, uh, <laughs> let alone uh, the, you know the rest you know the rest of Canada. But like the fact that more and more and more risk is being offloaded into Canadian and Alberta specific businesses um, as foreign companies are simultaneously removing their assets, as well as you know places are beginning to divest from the bonds themselves, which is a huge. Huge implication. If that if that carried on, that would be disastrous for both Canada and Alberta, to be honest. Um, and and so all of that is like it's, it's like it's you know I'm not to to memify this, but this is 100 percent the this is fine uh, as the as the world burns around you kind of thing. This is like you know the Alberta dump, Alberta dumping dump, doubling down or tripling down on oil as it is currently in a, in this environment is basically refusing to look at all of the literal fire that is happening around the world and saying or and honestly at home given given what's been happening uh, you know in the fire season around in Alberta and saying it's fine this is going to business as usual is going to continue and it's just it it doesn't hold weight and at the very least it doesn't hold weight for the rest of the world who really have no stake, you know, the rest of the, wor- the world doesn't care so much, you know, they, they, like these are institutional investors and in worldwide, they're looking for the best investments they can, uh, and also looking towards the future, uh, in an attempt to divest their, their portfolio. So like, this isn't, this isn't any sort of, this isn't Ontario being jerks to Alberta. This isn't inter-Canadian politics. You know, these are foreign companies and countries deciding that it's not worth the risk anymore. And like, if that doesn't say something, that uh, that we need to start focusing on something else. Then I then I don't. Then nothing will. Like this is Bloomberg. I'm not reading. This is an article I'm reading from. Is not a. Is, no, is not a. Uh, you know, this isn't the the tie, um The Intercept a, or the Intercept. You know, this, these are not. These are not these. You know, these are not. Uh, you know, typically. You know, left wing, which I agree with, but left wing uh, actions. These are. These, this is Bloomberg saying this is a concern. We should pay attention to this, um, and 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 we're not. Uh, at least currently, but anyways. So, th- so that there's we're we're staying on Alberta with the next story, but it's just like I just want to want to highlight the fact that the idea that these foreign companies and countries are so clearly moving away uh, is should be alarming to to Canadians uh, and Albertans uh, going forward. Well, that's why we need to take seriously movements like Iron and Earth in Alberta, which yeah. is a workers-run. Uh, um, program, group, movement, organization to uh, get the government to invest in uh, training those people for renewable energy jobs because they have the technical skills, right? They're ready to go. Well, yeah. Well, and, and there's and, and, and what we've seen in Alberta with Jason Kenney's government has been basically they got rid of every tax credit that was for almost every other type of business. Uh, as part of their cutbacks, well, you know, mm. they 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 so have much triple down on on the, on, on the oil economy. Um, even while bringing in a price on carbon like they have. 
Sorry, just, just really quickly before we go to the next thing. The other thing that I think is really important when we're talking about specifically about Alberta is that that's when I tweet constantly and I do at Justin Trudeau that the, you can't have a serious climate policy without job support program. That's not just because I enjoy sticking it to Justin Trudeau on Twitter. I actually don't get as much enjoyment out of that <laughs> as you as you think. It's because I genuinely care about my fellow Canadians. And as much as I'm genuinely concerned about the damage and human misery that's going to be caused by climate change if we don't do something, I'm also concerned about the damage that's going to be caused to the Canadian economy and my fellow Canadians if we don't do something. Yeah, we're hugely exposed. Like anyone, anyone can see this. This is like you know, it's it's like investing you know in uh, in in horses in the early 1900s. Like we're we're hugely exposed, and there's no such thing as a huge horse economy. But if there was, I mean, there was. Maybe maybe if you're a historical uh, analysis to know about horse economies, let me know. Um, I love horses. They're very majestic. Yes, you can ride them. They run free. They're wild. Okay. All right, let's let's move on to the Alberta uh, tax situation. I, uh, yeah, so this is going to be a quick story about the Al- new Alberta system, which our listener, longtime listener Margot, uh, suggested for us, which we are now doing because we like our listeners and we like to uh, look into what they're interested in. Only recently. Actually, long time. Sorry, this was not Margot. This was Sue Lee. Oh, My bad. We are going to get to Margot's uh, thing next week, we All promise. Right. She wanted to co- us to cover uh, citizens' assemblies. All right. Suli wanted us to also add the uh, iron and earth thing to this segment, but I didn't have time, so we will look at that next week as well. But in terms of the Alberta tier system, the Alberta Premier uh, Jason Kenney has brought forward his emissions reduction plan called Tier, uh, which will replace the previous government's plan under Rachel Notley. Kenney was elected on a promise to eliminate the consumer carbon tax, and this plan is a fulfillment of that promise. As Andrew Leach points out for the CBC, there had been an industrial carbon price of $15 a ton since 2007 on the biggest emitting emitting facilities. Uh, Notley redesigned and increased the industrial tax to $30 a ton and added a consumer carbon price. The current federal policy implemented by Trudeau also includes both a consumer and industrial tax. The consumer tax is a fee on carbon emissions generally, while the industrial tax charges big industrial emitters in proportion to their carbon efficiency relative to their peers. This is done by charging companies for their emissions and then giving them money back relative to their productivity. This incentivizes them to stay within the carbon market's jurisdiction and to keep lowering their emissions in order to save money and stay competitive. Kenny has axed the consumer tax in Alberta and kept the industrial tax. Leach argues that in terms of electricity generation, Kenny's plan is actually better than Trudeau's, since it prices all power generation equally, whereas Trudeau's plan favors coal over gas. But Kenny's plan goes easy on the oil sands and other high-intensity emitters, hoping to allow industry to save $330 million in emissions costs in the coming year. As well, under Kenny's plan, since oil companies get less and less money back from the government as they lower their emissions, there isn't actually a proper incentive for reducing those emissions. As Leach puts it, quote, The change from CCIR, which was Notley's plan, to, 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 to tier, is a transfer of hundreds of millions of dollars uh, per year, which benefits primarily the highest emitting facilities in the province, and a significant reduction in the value of innovative emissions-reducing technology. This is a problem that's easy to fix by leveling the playing field in the oil sands the same way the policy does for electricity. Leach also notes that in axing the consumer tax and keeping the industrial fees, 
Kenny is implementing an ironic strategy. Since he is only taxing the highest emitters, which is a policy that, if implemented federally, would greatly punish Alberta relative to other provinces. Yeah, and so I, uh, for for disclosure, the Andrew Leach basically wrote most of, or it was it was, it was key in the creation of the CCIR plan, not least plan. Yeah, um, which I think is important for two reasons. One, uh, you know, he you know in the article itself, he calls out his own bias uh, for the plan that he obviously supported, which he wrote. Um, but but is but also that you know his perspective comes from a perspective of uh, both what could work in Alberta, so within that sort of you know environment. And also a perspective of, you know, I would say more incrementalist, uh, what can we get done now than, you know, what what you know activists and scientists would say would be necessary to to keep us under 1.5 degrees um and and i'm not, i'm not going to spend this time getting into the incrementalist versus uh versus you know systematic systemic overhaul debate that's not what i'm doing um what i'm what i'm what i'm what i'm what i do want to talk about though actually is a the to highlight sort of these distinct differences and why why Kenny's plan might actually be better on on or an explanation or a thought about why Kenny's plan might be better on power than 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 Trudeau's plan would be, uh, and then just highlight sort of the end point that 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 uh, that Leach makes. I think is actually really really valuable and important. So what's interesting about this is if the the question that Andrew Leach sort of is posing without posing it directly in this in this article is what would happen what would it have looked like if and of Justin Trudeau's carbon pricing plan had looked like this plan. You know, if car- if Justin Trudeau had come out and said, okay, here is what the carbon plan is going to be, and it's going to be exactly what Jason Kenney just put out. The, the fact of the matter would be half of, I believe it's close to half, if not half, of all of the, uh, of the industry, uh, of all of the companies that would be technically regulated by this would be in Alberta. Um, and so, uh, and and beyond that, um, the the fact that it's exclusively large industries, and so that the the way that the power generation occurs, it fundamentally hurts places that have worse energy grids um, than than others. And so there almost would have been two negatives on Alberta if 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 if, if this had been the federal plan, both from a standpoint of implying that emissions from large emitters are all that matters, which is sort of which which it doesn't inherently here, and also the fact that. The 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 difference between uh, says earlier the the so the federal plan charges a charges a certain same amount of money for everyone for for um, for how much carbon their electricity creates, but then gives back rebates for for higher emitting uh, sources. So carbon gets more. So coal gets more of a, get a rebate for each each you know megawatt generated uh, than than natural gas does, and then renewables get nothing. And in where, whereas under under the Kenny plan, um, you know everyone gets charged for how much carbon they, they submit, and then everyone gets the same amount of money back for for renewable for for the amount of energy they produce. Which means that producing at this point that means the huge incentive to produce renewable energy in Alberta right now, uh, because you're able to you're able to make money twice. You can sell the energy, and you also can get money back from this rebate program. Um, and so that that system works great. That, that's and that's what Angelic says about how, about how it works better is that it does not it does not try to offset the fact that you know you have you have coal over here making more money per per megawatt generated from this from the system. And and what's and so what's interesting about that is that because it's in Alberta specific, you know they don't have to worry so much about what that how that would how that would lay across Canada, but. 
you know, say in Ontario, where most of our emissions come from smaller sources, there aren't, you know, we don't have as many huge, huge industrial sources that Delbert does, and our clean energy is so is so huge, um, that both those things uh, basically push us into a into a scenario where um, where we are trying where, where Alberta would be paying so much more money um, than they are even now. Uh, under this plan, and that it sort of implies almost directly that major emitters are the problem and that other carbon doesn't matter as much, both of which I think would be totally unacceptable to to Jason Kenney uh, and national national wide. And, and it's this weird juxtaposition of, you know, he implants something which, which I think in some ways the, the, I think the producers themselves have been asking for. It. You know, once you get some of this right in the wall, producers themselves are coming out and be like, look, I just need stability. So give me some stability in, in this plan. Um, but also that the fact that it does not, you know, that it, it's, it, it fundamentally implies that, that, that it's not an individual, that, that, that individual or smaller missions that add up, you know, are not as important. And, and that, I think, is a, a key thing to call out, especially as we see Kenny go out and spend the, the next three, four years railing against Trudeau's carbon price, which, which is that the reason the carbon price exists as it does is it's trying actually to be as reasonable across Canada. Like, the federal carbon tax was written in some ways pretty clearly to not hurt Alberta as much as it could. Uh, I think in part because it was negotiated with the Notley government, um, compared to any some of these other plans that they could have done, uh, especially that that the power generation difference. That is that's a that's a very specific and clear example uh, of a way that the federal plan is meant to limit the damage to Alberta that an, a, a present carbon could. Uh, and so that the fact that all of that is the sort of wrapped up in in, in this conversation, uh, I think is is really important. You know, and and it's like you know when. I, I've heard that we're going to hear uh, the 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 Doug Ford I think has accepted the fact that he's lost um, the 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 idea that the price on carbon is not is, is unlawful. So there's rumblings that he is going to release release some version of a of a carbon plan or or doing something on climate in the next next little bit as well. So that's going to come out. So I think we're seeing these conservative premiers now realizing that fighting the carbon tax in the courts is not going to work. It's lawful. It's fine. Carry on. And so now they're going to start trying to build up their own versions of something to pretend that that's enough uh, to get us to where we need to be as a way to sort of, you know, push back against against Trudeau and the government. But, you know, this is the this is the world we live in. Um, and so I think what we will do is, um, if you're all right, Dave, we'll go to a music break because we're a little over time and then come back to the Wilkins story. Or do you really want to get this Wilkins story? No, no, let's, let's, do, let's do it. All right. Let's, uh, let's head to music break and we'll come right back. All right, you're going to be glad you did because I got here a little bit early today and actually did music programming. Uh, we're going to have the Jerry Cans now. This is a band from Iqaluit, Nunavut, who combine traditional Inuit throat singing music and folk music. Here we go. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. All right, we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority. And I just actually, I came back to the music just a second early because, you know, you know, guys, Stefan and Dave and the listeners. Yes. 
uh, a lot of the time, you know, when I don't have time to do the music, I tend to play the Bare Naked Ladies over and over again. Right. And I've been doing that for a really long time. Um, it's because I'm just not a huge music person. But I realized something this morning because I got here eight minutes early and actually had time for my brain to operate before I pressed buttons. Hmm. There's absolutely no reason to not play Canadian indigenous music every single time unless I have an explicit reason not to. There's a ton of it. There's no reason not to do it. So that's silly. So here's my commitment going forward. Mm. Unless someone else t- asks me to play something, you, the listener, could request something. You guys could bring a song in. The default from this point forward will mm. be Canadian indigenous music. There you go. Well, there you go. Um, and so, again, just because this is totally a bit of a non sequitur before we get back into talks about the new environment minister, but because we are on, uh, are on CAUT uh, and because we do like breaking news every once in a while, um, the uh, the divisional court uh, has struck down uh, Doug Ford's government's student choice initiative. Uh, they, the three different uh, organizations, including the University of Toronto Graduate Students Union, had won a legal challenge against the post-secondary ministry. Uh, which means uh, basically that, that that was the sort of program that you might have heard uh, is sort of causing difficulties to get funding on many different many different things. And so, you know, as, as we are hosted on a campus, I think that is that is good news for all. Uh, now, again, it probably will be go to another court because this is how these things work. But, uh, you know, a start is a start. Um, let's move back into environment news with our new environment minister. So, yes, um Environment and Climate Change Minister, Catherine McKenna, is being replaced by Jordan Wilkinson, who had been McKenna's parliamentary secretary, as well as Minister of Fisheries, Oceans, and the Canadian Coast Guard, where he advocated for Trudeau's Oceans Protection Plan. He was once an advisor to a Saskatchewan NDP premier and became a corporate executive in clean tech before going back into politics alluding to the difficulty of meeting Canada's emissions targets while keeping Alberta and Saskatchewan happy, Shannon Proudfoot likened the passing of the baton to the passing of a lit stick of dynamite. She also described Wilkinson's 20-year stint in business as evincing, quote, a brain that regularly alighted on new things it wanted to wrap itself around. <laughs> the Toronto Star quotes Kai Nagata of Dogwood, B.C., as arguing that Wilkinson will show he's serious on climate by, quote, hunting down and cancelling fossil fuel subsidies in the first 100 days of his mandate, end quote. That's, that's him saying how he could, not, that he, not predicting that he will, but saying yes. how he could. Yes, that's an important distinction. Wilkinson said, quote, the issue is one that relates to the hydrocarbon-producing regions of this country, how we address climate change in a way that addresses their legitimate economic concerns. That is something that we need to be thoughtful of. Catherine McKenna will now become the Minister of Infrastructure and Communities, where she'll be focusing on green projects. Yeah. So there's um, again, uh, I think like for for uh, it's, it was sort of well covered near the end of the uh, end of, la- of last year, or well, not sorry, in the election campaign. Um, uh, th- th- just how vile the responses to Catherine McKenna uh, have been. Um, over the last four years, the the level of vitriol that is sent uh, her way is 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 was, was truly truly revolting um, and overwhelming to the extent where like where reporters would write articles about her and then they would be just just inundated with with vile uh, attacks um, and and so there's uh, I I I think that there's like a, a, I think you know from a from a human standpoint um, you know infrastructure and uh, communities, I think, is probably one that will be a little less contentious, and, and and hopefully allow her to like you know exist as a human 
uh, a little bit more. Uh, the 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 new incoming uh, new minister uh, Jonathan Wilkinson is is one of these characters that is. I would say, honestly, probably par for the course for the for the government. Uh, he was endorsed by 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 Green Pack, um, you know, as one of their environmental candidates. Uh, you know, his Twitter bio uh, and his experience. Uh, he touts himself as a clean a clean tech entrepreneur, uh, and at the same time, he you know the he ran a, a gas plant um, of some nature. You know, he he, he sort of was, uh, you know, that kind of. That sort of, you know, the clean tech has a, has a wide ranging. Set of yeah, he was sir. in energy uh, and electricity. Yeah. And. Uh, yeah. And like, and again, that thinks doesn't. of it generally as clean tech. Yeah. And that's, you know, and like, again, if you're like, in a world where one of the big fights is going to be about whether or not the LNG, you know, well, the LNG pipeline BC is probably going to go through. But like in the world where there, the conversation has moved beyond cleaner fossil fuels to clean fuels. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not out here thinking that this is, you know, because they had, they had a unbelievably strong environmentalist minister who got elected in Montreal, I believe it was, uh, to the point where he, he came out like that minister particularly came, even came out against TMX. Um, and, and yet the fact that, you know, we're, we're here, we got a guy from BC, uh, you know, with some environmental cred, but I kind of expect, you know, his, like his job will be to exist in BC while trying to get, allow them to still build Trans Mountain. Uh, and you know, like uh, this is going to, this is a more of the same kind of thing. It's not signaling, signaling any huge, huge shift, I think in their policy by any chance. Not that I'm sure, like there are very few ministers who would, I think that way anyways. Um, but but that's sort of the that's sort of what I'm getting the feeling of. You know, it's more of the same, um, and so the the you know the the push literally needs to become uh, what what can we do from here? Well, he's going to continue walking that tight rope. Yeah, that's, between the uh, environmental action and economic growth. That is, see, I feel like I feel like we need to be clear every time we say things like that that it is in tongue in cheek, uh, because. Um, you know that's a false narrative, but anyways, um, let's. Well, speaking of economic growth, offshore wind. Huh? That segue. Well, I mean, as you previously um, suggested, do it, uh, talking about international investment, that uh, the way we approach economic growth in Canada could, in fact, be economic disaster. Right. Yes. Exactly. Yes. The way we consider that place. So uh, yes, the UK is building the largest offshore wind turbines ever. 220 meters tall and with blades over 100 meters long. They will be able to power 16,000 homes each. One of these turbines can power 16,000 homes. The project will be uh, able to account for 5% of the UK's total energy supply, or 4.5 million homes. It will be the largest wind farm in the world when it goes online in 2023, and may even help bring down electricity prices in the UK, since it is cheaper than fossil fuel alternatives and requires no government subsidies uh, due to its guaranteed long-term contract. At the same time, the International Energy Agency has calculated that the global offshore wind potential exceeds current global electricity demand by 13,000 terawatt-hours. Current demand is 23,000 terawatt hours, and if all usable sites were developed, where it is windy and shallow enough, then offshore wind alone would produce 36,000 terawatt hours every year. Offshore wind can also help make cheap zero emissions hydrogen gas. 
Yeah, so there's a couple of things here. The first is that I, from all the things that I'm reading, offshore wind sounds like the sort of um, one of the most the, the the one that's really really expanding and growing real quickly. Uh, the opportunities and the the inability, and and how it fits into a larger energy grid, which is interesting. Is I, I was having a conversation with. Uh, I think it might have been Tim Nash, but it could have been someone else, around what an energy grid looks like that's entirely clean um, because of the fact that you do have this sort of question about, you know, do we have enough um, battery storage to, to maintain or, or you know, the fact that it's intermittent in, in, in how much you are able to get in different types of, of, of energy. And so if you are trying to create – if you're trying to recreate our current energy grid – uh, to just have just enough running at all times. The, the, you need some significant storage opportunities to make that happen. One of the interesting concepts that's out there, especially as these prices get lower and lower and lower, is this question of could you do a thing where you just actually produce 200% of the energy you need? You just produce so much more energy. Um, than, than you need because it, you know, it's, because it doesn't cost, you know, because there's no actual, you know, there's no operating cost of these things. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then just use that excess as the way to make sure you can manage the base load and, and everything else and the peaks is just, is to actually just accept the idea of, you know, we're not going to try to, you know, if storage is going to be such a problem, what about just creating just a ton of energy? Yeah. I think that's the idea with the hydrogen gas. You have you have uh, you just set the things up. They start running, as you said. No operating cost. You're just collecting the electricity. Someone's pushing some buttons, yeah. maintaining it every now and yeah, then. Yeah, there's like maintenance costs. Obviously, and the but. cheapness of that electricity allows you to use the electricity for other purposes, like creating uh, hydrogen gas, which can then be shipped in inland. Right. Yeah. Um, and 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 there's there's a there's another study which I don't think we're getting to, so I'm going to slip it in here um, uh, about. About um, a breakthrough that that was a, that, that came out of uh, the last, I think, maybe week or two. At least that that showed up in my feed. It might have been earlier than that. Um, around a solar uh, a solar array that successfully managed to heat wa- heat, uh, I believe it was water above a thousand degrees using ma- using basically solar and 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 mirrors, which would mean that you could then replace the fossil fuels that are currently acquired to make things like concrete. Uh, and instead use this sort of operation. And, and they're coming in at a price that is actually already sort of com- competitive with, 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 with fossil fuels. And, that was, and that's huge. Like, I can't understand, like, we've, we, it, it, because of how boring it is, really, to talk about concrete, um, we don't talk about that much, but the, the, the embedded carbon in concrete is astronomical. And so to be able to remove fossil fuels from the creation process, the same with steel, um, would, be, would be massive. Um, and, and so these are the kinds of, these are the kinds of solutions that, you know, I think the key here is breaking out of the idea that the future is going to look exactly like it is now, um, uh, and with just clean stuff rather that these, I, that the things that we're doing are totally going to be, you know, not just will make sense for the thing we're building, not for now. You know, like we can't, the way we're trying to project our future is just different than it is in reality. It's almost like we believe in the market and human creativity more than conservatives do. <laughs> well, the, this double, triple down on oil. What are you talking about? Let's do this. Um, but uh, but it's a good segue uh, to more wind stories. So from the National Observer, a new 2000, uh, sorry, $200 million wind farm will begin construction in Alberta next year and will supply 117.6 megawatts or 79,000 homes worth of electricity each year. 
the same company has already been building two other wind projects in Alberta this year, with a total of 134.6 megawatts, and they're looking for partners in another spot in southeastern Alberta, which could generate almost 400 megawatts a year, although these efforts became a little more difficult uh, when Jason Kenney scrapped the previous Alberta government's plan to help incentivize wind production specifically. Saskatchewan, meanwhile, is uh, somewhat begrudgingly entering the renewables push as well, having recently put out a request for proposals for projects constituting 300 300 megawatts of wind power, uh, partially motivated by their concern about what Trudeau's carbon tax will cost their natural gas plants. Uh, their natural gas plans, and are now hoping to have equipped their grid with 50% renewable capacity by 2030. Yeah, and uh, what's amazing about this is that here are, you know... you know, Kenny and uh, and Saskatchewan, uh, you know, these two stalwart conservative um, conservative places opening up their opportunities to 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 more renewable energy at the same time that the report came out this week that what is it, two hundred and thirty one million dollars was wasted when by, by Doug Ford scrapping uh, uh, renewable projects here. Is that right? Yeah. Like, you know, this is you know, here is you're seeing a you know, massive investment uh, from from the you know, from these conservative, but like it's, it's, it's this, the narrative just doesn't work. Like you have to, like, there's just, you know, you cannot like at some point you either are making the case that, you know, that, that renewables are, are bad for whatever reason, you know, like, or like like, the more, I guess what, I guess what I'm struggling to particular state right now is the way that this ends up feeling and, and and the more transparent it becomes is that the central policy here is not that you know renewable energy is not effective uh, is not uh, is is in some ways is certainly you know tripling down oil economy but there's also a level of just owning the libs you know there's there's so uh, like I read a tw- I read a I read a, I read a tweet or a comment recently about how we have to stop accepting that conservative uh, ideology is anything but beyond ideology because it no longer is backed on any facts you know like it's like it's no longer back it's, it's like, also self-refuting well for sure but 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 i mean like you know like the fact that you know the fact that the con- that the conservative ideology at this point you know is no longer listening to the economy which is basically stating that renewable energy are coming in cheaper and these things are good it's no longer listening to any science which, if it ever was but you know it's that it's completely like the idea now that like basically anything you could fall back on is showing that another way exists and that the rea- and that there's a doubling and tripling down on just things that used to be is basically the the the, the way that works is is i think a very important thing to highlight because like you know if you were a strict libertarian um or a strict market conservative the argument for what is currently happening in shifting away from fossil fuels is clear and so the only thing that that could be holding back is this this is is a is a is really just a refusal to change right it's a it's a it's a belief that our side look likes this and your side likes that and therefore i want what i want and and there's that that to me is a is a huge a huge problem, and it's in, in, in illustrated when things like this happen. When you come out um, and you know and start seeing these, like you know, when a when a when a com- when a country or sorry, or a or a province or whatever decides to fill in you know work or literally like I believe the Doug from one of the one of the one of the wind power plants was like minutes away, like it was days away from finishing construction, maybe a month or two away from finishing construction when they canceled it. And then they had to pay them tons of money to do that. You know, it was a foreign company. It was a German company, I believe. So it was, they lost foreign investment in Ontario. And, and the argument was just sort of like, 
well, it, you know, it's, it's green energy is bad. There's also something about the, who they want, what communities they desire to have power over their uh, location. Oh, yeah, totally. Over their localities. So you have, I mean, um, I would say that uh, certain more cer- certain more uh, more well-off rural white communities are given more say yep. about what types of energy projects are allowed they can allow in their communities versus something like Amgenang, obviously, right. if, where if they have no say. Yeah. If people's vo- if voter importance is scaled by the smallness of their community, I think indigenous people are due for um, some some political voice. But yeah, yeah, but I think you're right. Like that that is that is I think a, you know the fact that yeah that energy projects like the TMX can go through whatever, but you know that you have to listen to this you know this this the you know the backlash against wind power because it's unsightly is you know a direct indication of of who who we listen to. Yeah. Locals have power over their communities. Depending on who they are, yeah, exactly. Um, how they identify, yeah. Um, well, who, who they are specifically, um, how they're forced to identify. Yeah. Uh, do you want to get to very quickly this IEA story and then to the music break because it's like yeah. one paragraph? Great. Yeah. So another international energy agency report uh, out recently has claimed that renewable electricity is growing more quickly than expected and could, in fact, grow by fifty percent over the fi- over the coming five years which could end our rising demand for fossil fuels much sooner than oil and mining companies have predicted, and could even catch regulators and utilities by surprise. Although the IEA's head has also said that this growth will need to accelerate further in order to reach climate targets. In addition, the IEA put out its uh, World Energy Outlook this week, in which it predicts that emissions uh, will continue to climb for the next 20 years at least. Yeah. So, you know... It is, like, I don't know. There's, there's a, there's a, there's. I don't want to get too deep into the to, to things, but like, it is, you know, nonsense. Is that the word you're looking for? <laughs> um, Seven's baffled by this, uh, this contradictory messaging from the IEA. Yeah, well, the IEA is, yeah, they, they're, you know, when you're a legacy organization like that, you've got a lot of, you know, you're trying to do a lot of weird things. They're just saying renewables are growing much faster than we thought. However, emissions are still going to continue to climb. Yeah. Uh, Good luck. Also, we're not going to reach our targets. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which I guess, you know, like, again, all of those things can be true. That's not that's not entirely wrong. Uh, but let's let's go to a music break um, and and we'll come back with two more stories. We had so much fun. We're going to do it again. This is more Jerry Cans. All right, we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, as well as our community listeners and donors. Thank you so much for donating to the Fall Membership Drive. We're also, oh, and the podcast listeners. Yes. Can't forget. Uh, We only have a few minutes left, so let's get back to the news. Yeah, so we're going to jump into three stories um, uh, very quickly, starting with Pennsylvania. So from in from a report from Inside Climate News, the governor for the state of Pennsylvania, the second biggest natural gas producer and third biggest coal producer in the U.S., is drawing up plans for joining the country's northeast carbon market, which currently has nine states on board. 
The Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or RGGI, has already greatly helped its participating states, which not only dropped their electricity sector's emissions by 90% uh, 90 faster than the rest of the U.S., but their electricity prices have actually fallen 5.7%, even while they've risen 8.6% in the rest of the country. Their economies have grown faster than other states, and they've generated $3.2 billion collectively in revenue from the carbon auctions. Even though the state's Republican legislature would probably not endorse the plan, Governor Wolf is moving ahead with his proposal. Wolf, who has expanded fracking and built pipelines and a, and a major plastics facility, originally was not planning on joining the RGGI, but then he noticed how it could reduce energy prices and help their economy, partly because of the state's reliance on nuclear, which was losing out to natural gas, but would become more competitive in a carbon market. It will also help them restore their infrastructure with the revenue generated from the carbon auctions. New Jersey is also planning on re-entering the market after Chris Christie pulled them out, and Virginia was blocked from doing so by Republicans earlier this year. The Pennsylvania move would have an injurious impact on coal, which is already dying across the U.S. Speaking of coal, Murray Energy has filed for bankruptcy in spite of their consistently royal treatment from the Trump administration. They donated millions of dollars to Trump's campaigns and have had their pick of the litter of environmental deregulation for years, and yet they still can't keep afloat because coal is simply dying and will never return barring catastrophe. Coal lobbyists have been given positions in the EPA, and their companies have received corporate welfare all over the place, and yet they still cannot compete. And as, Dean, as Dan Garino writes for Inside Climate News, quote, with Murray's filing, each of the country's four largest companies have filed for bankruptcy in the last three years. The largest, Peabody Energy, filed in 2016 and emerged after restructuring its business in 2017. Arch Coal filed in 2016 and emerged later that same year. Cloud Peak Energy filed in May. The companies are able to re-emerge because the bankruptcy process uh, they're allowed to go through means that they can shed assets and workers and debt and still come back online, hawking a dying energy source. In pipeline news, the Keystone Pipeline, not the Keystone XL, which was canceled by Obama and then revived by Trump and is now undergoing environmental assessment hearings. But the original Keystone Pipeline built, uh, spilt 383,000 gallons of crude oil into the wetlands of North Dakota last month, which is the eighth biggest spill in the U.S. since 2010. Indeed, Keystone has only been around since 2010 and has been spilling crude all over the place since it came online. Rebecca Craven of Pipeline Safety Trust told Inside Climate News, quote, It's a lot for a new pipe, and it's troublesome that they are having as many incidents as they are on the first Keystone, particularly when it's a period of time that I would think they would be hypervigilant about making sure nothing went wrong while they are trying to get, get the final approvals for Keystone XL. The Keystone pipelines are owned by TC Energy, formerly TransCanada. The state originally estimated that around 2,500 square yards of land would be contaminated, but have now revised their estimate to an area 10 times larger than originally projected. TC Energy is looking to start the pipeline back up again as soon as this coming Sunday. Five activists, meanwhile, 
were arrested in Washington state for locking themselves to a dock to stop the delivery of pipe meant for the Trans Mountain expansion, a pipeline that was purchased last year for untold billions by our dear uh, little boyish prime minister. Cute, cute man. And also, a federal court has ruled in the U.S. that the owners of the Penn East natural gas pipeline cannot force New Jersey to overturn its land through eminent domain on grounds that private parties can't sue states in federal court, which means that more and more states may be able to stand up to pipelines running through their land. Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna run through these uh, uh, starting back all the way up with actually the IEA story because um, I now have composed my thoughts. But um, uh, but before I get there, I wanna I wanna highlight which is I, I should I did not do the do the full math on this, but it, it sounded like such a fascinating way of thinking about the carbon that I wanted to highlight, um, which is that. A, and also covers, I think, actually important because we mentioned earlier on a about the idea of investing in carbon capture and storage, which is that right now uh, this is a, this is a this is a say a tweet, but this is a, so like take this with a grain of salt. But the 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 the, the thought process is interesting. Um, there's 40 gigatons of carbon uh, in that uh, the atmosphere each year. That's the, so roughly our that's how much we're releasing. That's the, the emissions. Yeah, that's 40 our gigatons. Yeah, and a lot of that is and you know again and that's not how much ends up in the atmosphere specifically. A lot of that is I think collected by oceans and yada yada yada. But like that's how much we put in the atmosphere. Um, if you were going to turn that into a solid without adding mass, it would create a cube that is 27 kilometers wide. So like 27 kilometers by 27 kilometers by 27 kilometers. That is the amount of carbon that we release into the atmosphere every year. Um, now that again, that includes all the stuff that is absorbed currently by oceans and, 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 and so that if we absorbed all of that carbon, that would be bad <laughs> because it would, it would, you know, it would, you know, keep trees from living, but like just the scale of that, mm-hmm. you know, 27 kilometer wide, like wide, high, huge cube, you know, it's like the Borg, but is carbon. Also glacial rivers. They recently discovered that glacial rivers absorb more carbon than the Amazon. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And why? I don't know. We're gonna talk about it next week. All right, great. Um, so, to, so to come back to the um, to, to, okay, to come back to the to the, the IEA story very briefly, because um, I think it sort of does dovetail with some of the other stuff you're we talking about, which is that it, it seems it's interesting that we keep having these conversations where you know something is. We're keeping told that like the sort of the, the the reasonable voices in the room, and I'm putting air quotes in that around that in my in the in the studio, uh, keep saying things like, you know, the the amount of growth we're seeing in seeing in solar or wind or renewable energy is yeah, that's a lot, but it's still so small. Like if you remember, like a two month two months ago, we did that sort of line by line reading of that 47 reasons why this green transition would never happen. You mean the percentage of carbon we put in? Uh, well, no, the the amount percentage of uh, percentage of energy created or that is produced by clean energy. Oh yeah. So like the, the scaling of it is, is not that impressive because it's still such a small percentage of this wider problem. Yeah. And, and then, and then, you know, the fact that, and then you get this part of like, Oh, actually we might get, we might grow 50% over the next coming five years. And that, and that could, you know, and that could, you know, that's beating all our predictions. And then we keep being told to be on predictions, and then all while we're being told we could be, be keep beating all our predictions, we're also being told that this that you know that maybe we should fi- figure out how to regulate this better. Like maybe maybe we've not yet figured out the other policy pieces in place to deal with this fact. You know, where what's interesting about this is that we're seeing a very specific boon 
in you know in a capitalistic boon really you know like a very much like the kind of the kind of boon that you get specifically in when a ton of money gets invested in a thing towards this industry um but with but the the governments that are are, are at this point slower to respond than, than they could be you know and and we're and and so and so it's it's and so the concern I would have is that we're going to get to a place that that there's so much that that they aren't able to keep up and then they aren't able to or or that the governments are at this point you know still locked into some of these other other industries that they haven't been able to figure out um, or and and so then you know you get to the point where like again you're you're back to Alberta to sort of to end where we started which is that you have an Alberta government which is entirely focused on. Oh, you know, on on trying to maintain an industry because of the fact that they're so dependent on it, right? Like Alberta's economy, Alberta's government's functioning is so so wrapped up in royalties that come from these oil companies that like they are basically being, you know, again, they they they, they do not have a lot of taxes, and so they're basically most of the money comes directly from oil companies. So the the, the loss of oil company revenue is direct loss of 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 of. Alberta revenue in a very direct way and not not so much in the sort of like a good economy way, but they don't have the actual things in place in a tax system to make money other ways. You know, and so like this was the sort of thing that I, one of the frustrations and, and things I wished I could get from from Notley was some commitment to actually, you know, bring in some sort of other t- sales tax or some other tax that would allow the government to keep functioning without it being so, 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 so directly tied to, to oil companies and the, and, the, and, and the actual royalties that are paid directly to the government. Um, you know, and, and that's the kind of rea- reality that leaves you wondering, you know, it leaves that explains when someone like Sweden comes along, Sweden Central Bank comes along and says, you're basically just like, if I'm going to divest, I have to divest in your economy uh, is because, and, you know, it's hard to say no, because literally oil company revenues are directly going into the, uh, the Alberta government coffers. And, and that's how they're running the country, like the, the, the province. And so like, it's, it's really like, you know, you're, it's. The, the fear that we often say in this is that we're, we're careening towards an edge and that we're not getting there uh, and, that, and that we're not going to have the systems in place for when, when we have to find another way to live. And, and you know, in governments and even the International Energy, Agency, International Energy Association is saying this. And, like, we got to figure something out. So just uh, we have like one minute left and I wanted I did a little fact is my turn to do some fact checking. So I had a little bit detail just to throw in. Uh, so, Stephanie, it was. Uh, uh, hundred and uh, excuse me, uh, $231 million uh, that the Ford government is spending. And I wanted to clarify on what it was. Mm. So this is to tear down or cancel 751 renewal energy products around the province, including buying out $141 million 20-year contract that had been signed. So we signed a 20-year contract. And, we bought and the he's whole saving thing Ontario money by buying them out of a 20-year contract. So we just get that money is just burned. We don't get anything for it. Uh, and the last thing here uh, was uh Ken's email came out to the station about the the news. Speaking of Ford, uh, we actually now. So if you were listening to our show, you found out before other CIUT people. That's pretty <laughs> cool. Uh, so the just one last piece of information that's that's uh, important about that. So we will we'll have because that's not it's not environment, but it's important to our station. We will update you when we get more. The last thing for now is that yes, they can appeal it, but it looks like they'll have to make that decision within sixty days. So what we're looking at right now is the announcement in the next sixty days, approximately, for whether or not they're going to appeal it. But they probably will. Right. Uh, we technically have 80 seconds left well okay so let's let's use this to, to sort of to, to try to bring that back to the like the the question here we have fo- facing us today um and and that's been sort of highlighted i think throughout this whole show um is is can we convince the the federal government uh and the specifically the the, the, the specific alberta 
to to get in to get with the future. Can we do that? Um, you know, the, the, we've the the federal government uh, carbon tax is is cowtowing in some ways to Alberta. Uh, the the Alberta is 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 now basically on a like a whole worldwide offensive trying to convince people that they are they're financially reasonable, and we have to move off oil and protect these people who live there. And so, if we can, you know, support Iron Earth if you can, find other ways to do this. We need some help. Let's get out. Let's get doing it. Have a wonderful green week. See y'all real soon.